we got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day Podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. Alabama turns the pages with new coordinators. Don't hold your breath on the Longhorns and Sooners joining the SEC early. And who's the best team in college basketball? Jay Billis will join us in a matter of moments. This is the College Game Day podcast. Reese Davis here. Pete Thamel is not with us today. He is luxuriously kicked back on a beach in a foreign land with his lovely bride and taking some well-deserved R&R and perhaps uh, has put his phone away and is not answering text every 42 seconds from various position coaches from across the country and other scouts that he probably encountered in Mobile. And while Pete was in Mobile, I'm sure a big topic of discussion was what is Nick Saban going to do next with his coordinators? Well, we have answers to those questions now as Alabama has hired Tommy Reese as the offensive coordinator, the former Notre Dame quarterback and former Notre Dame OC. And Kevin Steele returns for yet another tour of duty at Alabama, if memory serves. It's his third stint on the Saban staff, this time coming back as defensive coordinator. He was the original defensive coordinator for Saban when he took the job at Alabama in 2007. A couple of really different hires in this respect for Saban. One, the defensive coordinator is someone who has known him for years, has worked with him, for him. They've been colleagues. Uh, if I also believe that Kevin's son at one point was an analyst on the Alabama staff, maybe even while Kevin was the defensive coordinator at Auburn. But these are two guys who have a long and extensive history with one another. And certainly if there's anyone out there who understands what Nick Saban expects of a defensive coordinator, it would be Kevin Steele. Uh, Kevin did a tremendous job at Auburn, did a great job at LSU. And there are areas of the Alabama defense that probably needed improvement. One was uh, stopping third downs. One was limiting explosive plays, which they sort of uncharacteristically did the last couple of years. That's been in Steele's wheelhouse, as has linebacker play been. And that has been the subject of some criticism at times as well. So that hire is not really outside the box. That's one that you would expect from, uh, from Nick Saban as he looks to perhaps um, get his defense back to the level uh, that he's comfortable with. The Tommy Reese hire is a little bit different in, in this respect. The only known connection between the two, there's no real obvious uh, Belichickian connection that some of the offensive coordinators have had. There's no uh, time that one coach or another has spent as an analyst or, or in Lane Kiffin's case before he was hired, he came in to observe and evaluate the offense. Tommy Reese was a guy that Nick Saban uh, found in the – most notable connection was that Tommy Reese actually played on the Notre Dame team that faced Saban's 2012 championship team in the BCS championship game. So a little bit of a different look. So then the question comes up, what will this mean for Alabama's offense going forward? Well, Tommy Reese has a reputation of being able to utilize personnel, the quintessential players, not plays kind of guys, as some have described it. And he also showed great adaptability over the past year or so and dealing with the myriad quarterback injuries that Notre Dame suffered. They had a, a strong running game. Uh, even if you knew they didn't have much of a threat of a pass, they still found the way to run the football. And I think because Alabama has struggled in, uh, by, by its own lofty standard, has struggled a bit in terms of being a physical running team who, when it comes down to third and two, doesn't have to rely on the quarterback to make magic to get third and two, that they can line up and get it. Well, who has done that uh, pretty well, uh, even, even when not uh, blessed with the big threat of the past? Well, Notre Dame's done that pretty well. Some of the numbers, if you're just looking at raw numbers in terms of offensive output, and efficiency and all of those types of things, that's not going to blow you away. 
but you talk to people who really evaluate offense. And I was talking to David Pollack about this uh, just a couple of days ago. And he brings up things like Tommy Reese is really good at flooding zones. Uh, he's really good at helping accentuate his quarterback's strong suits. And we've seen uh, on a couple of occasions that he's got a bit of an edge to him. Just do your insert your uh, profane adjective here job. Um when he was coming down to celebrate the Clemson win, I think that was right. I think I have this story right. Um, he basically said, if I don't get there in time, by the time we get the ball back, uh, just run duo until you lose your voice. You know? So he's, he, he's got a little, he, he's got a little stuff in his neck. And I think maybe then in this next uh, chapter of Alabama offense, while they have a couple of, uh, a couple of sensational quarterback prospects, um, in in Jalen Milrow and, and J- Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson to vie for the job, they don't have uh, you know a, a proven magic maker yet. Uh, like Jalen Hurts proved to be, like Tua Tagovailoa certainly proved to be, in the way Bryce Young was. So you might find that this is going to go back and cycle back to a little bit more old school Alabama offense. Alabama hasn't been under center uh, much lately. Notre Dame has. So it'll be interesting to see because the one thing that Saban has consistently done with offensive coordinators over the years, when you come to Alabama, you don't just bring your playbook and your terminology. You adapt to what they do. Now, you you put your own spin on it, but in terms of uh, the verbiage and so forth, the Previously, and I, I haven't talked to Nick about this yet, but I assume I have no reason to think it would be different, that their view is that it's far easier for you to learn their nomenclature than for every player and every other staff member to have to learn yours. So there will be some, uh, it will still be the Alabama offense, I think, but every offensive coordinator that's been in there has put his own spin on it. And what Tommy Reese does with a new quarterback with a dynamic uh, running back recruiting class and some really good returning running backs as well and top offensive line recruits and also some guys are very high on coming back in the offensive line. Can they maybe uh, reestablish themselves as a little bit more of a physical team and with steel on the defensive side, um, do they maybe do a little bit better job getting the ball getting off the field on clutch third downs, limiting explosive plays, not getting caught in certain matchups, things, uh, things like that, that Kevin throughout his career um, has been, you know, has been really, really good at. And before you even send the note, I know Clemson fans, everybody, everybody has a rough night and Kevin Steele reinvented himself after, um, after that orange bowl game in which West Virginia put 70 on Clemson. And since then uh, his defense is, at Alabama, but particularly at at Auburn and at LSU, uh, were dynamic. And in fact, for several or several years, his last couple of years at Auburn, he was largely keeping keeping Auburn in games. Oftentimes, in games they might not have had any business being in um, because the the defense was so good. I even remember the game that Auburn went down in Joe Burrow's sensational year. And I'm pretty sure that that was LSU's lowest output in terms of points of the season. They, I think they forced him into a turnover in the end zone and um, did a you know had a really good plan, even for uh, one of the more dynamic offenses that we've seen in recent years. So um, I think if you're you know certainly Georgia's atop the hill, no one disputes that right now. But uh, the idea that Alabama might go quietly into that good night without making a, another run at it. Will uh, is being challenged by these two coordinator hires. Not sexy, not the splashiest hires you can think of for sure, and certainly no guarantee that they're going to work. But in keeping with uh, with the the philosophy and the standard that Nick Saban has set in terms of making these types of decisions, and I think that if you're looking for splash and dash, and you're going to evaluate uh, whether those were successful hires by that measure. It might be a wiser way to look at it to say, how many times has he missed? And the answer to that is not often. 
Still looking ahead to the college football season, I think there had been some optimism or some hope that maybe uh, with all of the conference realignment that Oklahoma and Texas would leave the Big 12 a little bit early. You'd start seeing some of those games in 2024. Television partners certainly were um, interested in seeing whether that was doable, but that has hit a snag. So we're going to have the, it looks as if, barring some type of change, which is always possible, you're going to wind up with, um, with, a large and unusual Big 12 schedule for a couple of years in the SEC. We'll have to cool its jets waiting on the arrival of the Longhorns and the Sooners, although to that end, Texas and Alabama do play in a non-conference game this year. Oklahoma and Georgia were scheduled to play, but uh, that was nixed with uh, with the Sooners' uh, pending move into the SEC. We're in the midst of college basketball and all this Alabama talk. Uh, Alabama is going to Auburn on Saturday. College game day will be there. Crimson Tide ranked third in the country. Bruce Pearl's team had a little bit of a tough spot lately. Probably one of those desperation mode games that uh, always seems to favor the home team. Much like what Purdue ran into this past weekend when it went to Indiana. And Purdue had really been the only team in college basketball immune to the churn underneath them and turning in these clinkers where you know they just get run out of the gym for the first half in Bloomington on Saturday it looked as if the Boilermakers might be headed for one of those but they fought back and ended up uh, coming up just short in a hard-fought game but it allowed them to maintain their top spot in the polls and you know really you start looking and evaluating the other teams and you know who's been better than them Zach Eady, the seven four, maybe. I mean, he looks bigger than that to me. Uh, he's like a cheat code. You go on a little run against him, and all of a sudden, he just gets the ball and extends his arms and drops it in the basket, or he, or he blocks a shot for you. And this is a really, uh, really refined and to use the real popular, uh, real popular word in basketball circles these days. They're connected. I don't know who the guy was who said that at a clinic in the off season, but clearly the memo was received because like every, uh, every coach and every analyst talks about a team being connected or disconnected, but I digress at, at any rate, but Purdue, I, I think there's no question uh, that Purdue looks like the best team to me. I don't know that they're going to win the national championship, but I, I'll get a chance to see them in person on Thursday night when I go with my pal, Seth Greenberg to call the Iowa Purdue game for ESPN two. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Pleased to be joined by the voice of college basketball, great game day partner, tremendous friend, honored to have him on the show. Jay Billis joins us now. Jay, how are you? RD, I'm doing great. Much better to be with a consummate professional like you with spectacular hair that's always <laughs> well coiffed, groomed, product, all the all the things you need. Got to have product. I'm, I don't shy away from that. There was a time in my life that that embarrassed me and no longer. I didn't, you know, you got to keep that's it in order. Clear. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> that's, that's clear. You know, I, w- I was talking a few minutes ago about I'm calling the Purdue game on Thursday night, looking forward to seeing them in person. How do you assess Purdue as, as it pertains to them being a cut above the rest in college basketball this year? I, well, I think they're a cut above the rest in consistency. Uh, they've been as consistent as any team and they've won a lot of close games uh, and, and games that have been very physical and, and they have something nobody else has. I mean, they've got Zach Eady. Uh, he's been spectacular and his development as a player has been one of the most impressive things you can, you can imagine over the last three, three plus years. Um, you know, they have freshman guards and everybody worries about winning with freshmen. They're winning with freshmen. Uh, they're not bulletproof, uh, and they're not a knockout punch team that's going to blow teams out here, you know, game after game. But they're really good offensively, and uh, I think they uh, they are better defensively this year than they have been, and they're they're deep. 
um, you know, they can they can go with a lot of different options around Edie uh, with a little bit more size in the lineup or play a little bit smaller. Um, and Edie plays a ton of minutes. I mean, he's playing 30, 30 plus minutes a game. And uh, and so he doesn't have to come out very much. And, and the guy gets fouled almost every play. It's really remarkable. I think the officials do a good job of not essentially not punishing him for being bigger and stronger. But there's only so much everybody can do. I mean, it's like Shaquille O'Neal. Like, he got fouled all the time. And fouls that would be called on smaller players just aren't called on him. Uh, for him, I should say. And But but they're legit. Um, but they're not head and shoulders better than, than the other top teams, in my view. How tall do you think he really is? I think they list him at 7'4". He looks enormous. And the the wingspan, if I may borrow that that term, I mean he looks he looks like he's seven nine with a, you know with a fourteen foot wingspan out there sometimes. You think he's grown? Yeah, I mean he's gotten bigger and stronger certainly, um, and he's in in better physical condition than he's been uh, over the years, and that's just sort of the natural maturation when you put that much time and effort into something. But I think he appears bigger because when his defender is guarding him, they're not standing straight up. They are leaning, you know, they're trying to apply any kind of leverage they can. So they're, you know, leaning forward with their arms into him and and that's going to make them look smaller. But that's all they can do to try to keep him from moving them down the lane. Um, you know, I, I think it was Matty Sissoko uh, for Michigan State. I mean, he was he was at a forty five degree angle trying to trying to guard him uh, and keep him out of the out of the paint, no, out of away from the front of the rim, and and he did a good job. And Edie still got what thirty eight, and then he turns around and gets uh, you know gets thirty three uh, against Trace Jackson Davis. I mean, he's he's unguardable by one person, and you know your old coach Wimp Sanderson. I was talking to him the other day and he said he, he might just guard him one-on-one and see if he can guard score 60 and just not try to not to let anybody <laughs> else score and it's a fair point really mm-hmm. that is you know if you could take away threes from everybody else and and just sort of guard them face guard them you know and then see if you can outscore Edie uh in the game um there's some merit to that when he because he's such a he's a good passer and he can see over double teams and Matt Painter does a really good job of scheming for the double team and then running actions to, to work off that. Uh, they run a little elbow back screen when the, the double goes. He's basically inviting the double team from that spot so he can get that action and Edie can pass to it. Um, so it's, it, they're an impressive group. I just don't, I don't feel the same way about mm-hmm. Purdue that I did about Baylor or Gonzaga a couple years ago or North Carolina in 2009, or, you know, uh, Kentucky in 2015. Uh, well, it was Kentucky, Wisconsin, and Duke that year that we thought were kind of final four favorites, and they all wound up making it, and it was the fourth spot that that uh, you didn't know was going to happen with. But And if those teams had, you know, it wasn't that they couldn't be beaten, but if they got beat before the final four, you would have had your jaw on the floor in shock. This year, I don't think I'd be shocked if any of these teams lost in the – the Sweet 16. Well, they've all done it. Everybody below them. I mean, now Purdue's only lost a couple of times as you and I are speaking right now, but um, everybody else below them has has churned a little bit. Who's the most interesting guy that you've done 94 feet with this year? This year? Um, the most interesting person has been Red Panda over the years. Uh, I did a 94 feet with Red Panda. How did that um, go? That was awesome. Uh, it was at Virginia Tech, and uh, uh, it was fantastic. It was the only time that the whole, the entire crew came out to the floor to watch it, and uh, and I thought it was because they wanted to watch an artist at work. Me, you know, <laughs> with my interviewing skills, and it turns out that wasn't the case. They wanted to see Red Panda, but it gave you it gave you a perspective as to how high up she is on that that unicycle. And, uh, and it, it was really cool. I mean, I really enjoyed it, uh, because she's not a, she's not a, a big person and then she's that high up and, uh, it's really kind of amazing. You know, when they say it's just like riding a bicycle, I don't think they had a unicycle in mind. Um, 
But th- this year, it's it's been mostly players. Uh, they, there are those who believe they're magnets in the bowls. Did, did you get to the bottom of that? Are there magnets in those bowls? I don't know. I don't think so. But even if there were magnets in them, it's still pretty impressive. Uh, the bowls don't break. I think it would be much better if they were actual, like, um, like uh, expensive china and there was a uh, price to be paid for it. And then there had to be a cleanup if there was a drop. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, every, everywhere she goes, like, you know, you and I are at games all the time where we see, you know, Red Panda there and, uh, and the crowds love her. It's totally different. There are two things I like seeing at a halftime show. One is Red Panda and two are dogs that catch Frisbees. I, I like I like the frisbee catching dogs. The, the the those two are my favorites. Everything else is great, but but they don't compare. The you know the one I liked. We were at Michigan one year for game day, and there was um, there was a contortionist there. There was a woman who could basically fold her entire body into pretzels and and like get under limbo under or somehow get underneath very low. Uh, bars or something that was pretty wild too I had my picture taken with her where she raised her leg up completely over her head and I lifted my leg as high as I could which was somewhere in the vicinity of my waist maybe (laughs) (laughs) I liked her yeah I the contortionist thing makes me a little uncomfortable just with the you know like watching people bend in places that I don't think you should be bending Uh, I'm not I'm not into that she, she like, it's almost like she dislocates joints and then puts them back together in different places. So her body will go yeah. in, in different ways, but that's, uh, I, I digress a little bit. What's the best thing college basketball has going for it this season? Well, I, I do think the, you, you know, how I've recoiled at, at people explaining a loss by saying parody, mm-hmm. but we have more quality across the board among teams this year than we've had uh, in a long time. It doesn't seem like any of these teams are separating. And uh, there are more teams that I think, man, they're really good. But but I, I we haven't used the word great as much this year. Um, there have been great – I mean, there are great players out there that are putting up, uh, you know, kind of amazing numbers and performances. But it, it hasn't been – I haven't been blown away by going, man, that's the best team. Some years – you go, man, that's the best team. And uh, even if they've lost a few and they're not ranked this high, you're going, yeah, they're the best team. Uh, I don't feel that way really about anybody this year. And and it's an odd, it's sort of an odd, it's a different feeling. But this is what every, not everybody, but this is what a lot of people say they want. You know, they want parity. They want, you know, equality across the board, you know, this anybody can win thing. And uh, and I think we actually have we're closer to that this year in especially in certain conferences like in the Big Twelve and uh, you know a good part of the SEC the Big Ten is that way for the most part um, the ACC's got some issues at the bottom of the league like what I think the Big Twelve is a league that has no bottom mm-hmm. it's just it's middle and up everybody's middle and up and that that's kind of scary when you go on the road and you go God we got to play our best to win this game. You know, usually you play three, four teams in your league, maybe more at times when you go, okay, if we play well, we're going to win. If we don't play as well as we're capable, we'll still have a chance to win. You know, we, we maybe we should win. Um, that's not the Big 12 this year. Uh, the ACC has some of those games. You know, Louisville's not been good. Georgia Tech's not been good. They're, they're, Florida State's not been what we've expected uh, from from them over the years. So there there are a few more get healthy games, I would say, in in the ACC and that hurts the league overall like every game in the Big 12 is a quad one game it seems like and you know Kansas has had its its toughest schedule ever they played like 10 teams already that are ranked yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's 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 about half their games uh against ranked teams and that that's that's not the norm uh it's it's kind of crazy in a way but and it skews the the your feeling about the team a little bit when when they they lose a game and you're going, what they're losing to this team? Well, that, they're really good. I mean, mm-hmm. the, this year they're really good, and uh, so it's a it's a it's been an interesting year in that regard. You know, I, I don't think fans, generally speaking, this is not just in college basketball. I don't think 
they want that in college sports parity, I mean, or or anybody can win across the board because I think it generates more interest among fans outside their own teams if they have someone they can really take a shot at or someone that they can uh, hope to knock off. The 2015 Kentucky team that you referenced earlier that was going for an undefeated season, there was great drama every time they played. And while all due respect to Duke who won the national championship in Wisconsin, throughout the course of the year, Kentucky was that team. And they were the team that everybody wanted to knock off and everybody was drawn to to watch. I think that fans think they want everybody to have a chance, but what they really want is everybody to have a chance to slay a giant. And that that would be that would be that would be what I think makes the best overall season in any sport when regardless of whether the giant wins, that there's someone to shoot at over the course of the season. I, I agree with that. Like I, I think I think golf benefits from having someone like Tiger Woods when when he's dominant. Uh, baseball, same thing. When the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers are dominant, um, I think that elevates the sport. Uh, I think it's true in college basketball as well. Like I, I think we hearken back to those years and can remember them because we had those dominant teams. And it doesn't mean that all their games were blowouts because mm-hmm. they weren't. But but you saw teams answering the bell over and over again against teams that were you know going for you know throwing everything out there to win. And this isn't one of those years. I mean, it's still been great. It's just been different. And, and, you know, like Gonzaga is, is being criticized, I know, because people think, well, you know, Gonzaga should rip through the, the West Coast Conference. And you're going, man, St. Mary's is legit. Like, they're really good. That dude, Aiden Mahaney, their, their freshman, is going to play in the NBA. You know, he's going to be, um, uh, if he sticks around, he's going to be St. Mary's version of John Stockton. Like, that guy's the real deal. And and losing to them at their place is not only and they had a chance to win. They had a shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Gonzaga had a shot at the end of regulation to win it, and then lost in overtime. But but Gonzaga is still the same like truly outstanding team. And it, and twenty years ago, Reese, when we started College Game Day, the idea that Gonzaga would be we'd expect them to be in the Final Four every year, you'd go, what are you smoking? Yeah. And and it's a remarkable thing that they're in the position that when they lose a game, we we treat it like a natural disaster. And and, and it it's 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 bizarre to me. You know, that that those are some of the things that that we should celebrate a little bit more. I get it. I I get how we we handle things, but you know, like to your point earlier, like I thought Connecticut had a chance to be a a team that could separate a little bit and they haven't done it. Their numbers suggest they should be in the top five or top 10 in the country uh, in rankings. And, uh, and Creighton's another team that, that I, I still think is final four capable. Uh, but they had, you know, an injury called Brenner was out for a little while. They've had uh, a couple of injuries here and there, but, but they're starting to play like, like uh, the team we expected and going down the stretch, there's still actually a fair amount of time to go here. And there's still going to be some teams that I don't want to say emerge, but that build toward a championship. Like a year and a week ago, we watched you and you and I were in in Allen Fieldhouse and watched Kentucky manhandle Kansas. Mm-hmm. I mean, they beat them bloody, and uh, and none of us were walking out of that the, out of Allen Fieldhouse that night going, "Yep, there's the national champion. It's the Jayhawks." <laughs> Yeah. None of us were saying that, and if you did, we would have gone. What are you smoking? And can I have some? <laughs> and and they they want it. Um, and I think this year could be a similar thing, where you look back at some of the results and you go, "How did the team that lost like that win the whole thing?" Same with North Carolina. Like I, you know, we mm-hmm. were going to think North Carolina can make the tournament. Can they put it together and make the tournament? And and they they played for the national championship against the, you know another team that we didn't think could do it at that time. I couldn't get last year the Kentucky game out of my mind when assessing Kansas. I don't remember, you know, when you fill out your bracket, I don't I don't remember exactly where I picked Kansas to go out, but it was way earlier than people thought because I know better. I mean, we've all seen teams have meltdowns and not play well, but there was something about that night and that game that stuck with me and I couldn't I couldn't shake it. And you know, I would say 
similarly, you and I, I think Dan Schulman was ill or had trouble, travel problems or something. We called the first uh, North Carolina Duke game in Chapel Hill and Duke just took them apart. And, <laughs> you know, so it, it, it really is interesting sometimes when you get these, um, especially up close impressions of a team that are difficult to shake, even when you intellectually know one game, no big deal. It happens. You know, it's it's hard to shake it sometimes. You're a perception that is ingrained like that. If it's, you know, it's one thing for them not to shoot well and lose by nine, you know, and you say, oh, well, they were a little off. But when they when they just get just get stomped, get curb stomped, you know, the way Kansas did and the way North Carolina did that night, it's hard, hard to shake. I think this year, and I may be, you know, who knows, this is a barroom discussion in a way, but I think if we took the tournament field the the as bracketed and played it 10 times, we could very well have 10 different champions. I I, I really believe that. Um, I, I just think there, there, there's nobody that, that is projecting as a knockout punch team. And you know, that that's going to be beautiful in a way to watch when we get to the tournament. Um, but it doesn't, you know, we're, we're probably going to be fooled in the, the opposite direction by some things, by teams that are a little bit hot at the end. Like mm-hmm. Virginia Tech was that way last yep. year. Yeah. You know, they, they, man, they ripped through the ACC tournament. You're going, who's going to guard that? And then they lose to Texas. And Texas was really good. But um, as was Virginia Tech. But but we're, we're going to probably get fooled in that regard, trying to pick the hot team when, when we're not going to know what hot looks like when the tournament starts. Because you can get hot from the tournament. Like it, there's there's no way that it, people can say what they want. There's no way anybody thought that St. Peter's was going to go to the Elite Eight. Nobody thought that. <laughs> and when they were doing it, coaches out of their own league were saying, "We beat them twice," you know, and, and talking about what, is, what the hell is this? Yeah. You know, that nobody saw that coming. And and we'll have some of that in the tournament this year. I don't know if we'll have another St. Peter's. Those are, uh, you know, like comets going by. It doesn't happen as often as people would like to think. But but I, I could see a. I, I really do feel that play it ten times, ten different champions. It has that feeling to me. No one has put more thought, um, evaluated and then combine that with the legal background and expertise that that you have with the various NCAA and NIL issues and that type of thing. What do you make of this latest piece of legislation? Basically, my uh, rudimentary understanding of it is that the NCAA is now going to presume you guilty uh, until you can prove yourself innocent, which in some ways I know is not necessarily that much different from the way it's operated historically. But in terms of the dealing with the with the NIL collective and this uh, bylaw change, any impact of this? What what do you make of it? I think the the standard that has been passed now, the idea, just the very idea that you could say, well, we believe that that you did this, uh, so prove to us that you didn't. Prove yourself innocent, essentially, is lunacy. I think it is absolute lunacy. And not only do I think it is going to fail, uh, I think there are those that are, are, are in the structure, whether they be uh, school administrators or actually in the office uh, at, in Indianapolis under new leadership with Charlie Baker coming in. Uh, when they get in the crosshairs of that, they're going to go, wait a minute, this isn't fair. Like this all sounds sounds reasonable when it's somebody else, uh, but if when it's you, you're going to go whoa 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 like this isn't fair. And at the same time, the NCAA is doing this; they're in front of Congress begging them for an antitrust exemption. And how do you think the the senators and and Congress people are going to feel about the lack of due process in the system? Um, if, if, if they want an antitrust exemption, I don't think Congress is going to wade into that, but if they do due process is going to be a part of it. And, uh, and I don't think that's going to sit very well with most congressional leaders, but, but I could be wrong there, but I, I, I think this is absurd and, uh, it'll be shown to be such, uh, as we go forward and they'll, they'll wind up, you know, they'll have these cases not decided. They may be decided by the committee on infractions with this ridiculous standard, 
but they'll they'll have to explain that in federal court uh, if uh, if the result is what I think it'll be. Coaches in in basketball, football, whoever you talk to now, you know they they've got all kinds of issues with the way uh, the NIL's going and recruiting people off the rosters and various different things. And I've said several times in this podcast. The only way I see out of it, if indeed you need a way out and you're not willing to just let the the market settle at all, is some type of collective bargaining. Now, that sounds real easy for somebody to sit behind a microphone on a podcast and say, well, they should collectively bargain this. The question that then comes to my mind, okay, who does the bargaining for the players and who are they bargaining with? You know, are they bargaining with the conferences? Are they bargaining with the NCAA? Are they bargaining with a new entity that would run uh, college football or college basketball separately, obviously? That seems to be the path that where I think this is going to wind up ultimately. I don't know what the time frame will be. Am I off track there? Am I, am I right? Is that a reasonable way to provide some type of, you know, we say guardrails, it makes it seem like somebody has to impose something, but some type of structure, because you've said many times, this is a professional enterprise. Well, all of the professional enterprises in sports have some type of structure that people adhere to in terms of honoring contracts and player movement and things of that nature. Right. There are a few things. So one, not only is it reasonable, it, it, it's probably the smartest way to go about it is to, and unionization would be difficult because of uh, private and public institutions. There, there would be different, different rules and, and things to deal with uh, with that. But it, the players could form a trade association and whether it's the NCAA or conferences could deal with that trade association. They could, they could reach some sort of, of collective bargaining type agreement. The problem with that is, and I, and I get your point, and I think it's a very good one, about the structure of uh, professional sports leagues like the NFL or the NBA. The, uh, those leagues collectively bargain with the players. But what I think a lot of people, not you, but what a lot of people miss in this is in those agreements, the players get 50% of the revenue. So mm-hmm. that's why they're happy to split it up. They get 50% of the revenue, roughly. Maybe it's 49 in one case or 51 in another, whatever it is. But we're talking about half of the revenues going to the players. The NCAA doesn't want that. And when I say NCAA, I mean all the member institutions. They don't want that. And, you know, I think you're right uh, in what you're implying that guardrails is just a really nice way of saying restrictions. Like, you know, because we have no guardrails on coaches' salaries or guardrails on facility spending. And what I find interesting when when the mythical level playing field is brought out is they only bring out the mythical playing level playing field when they're talking about the players. We need to control the players in order to have this mythical uh, level playing field. If, if all of these administrators, uh, whether they be – college presidents, ADs, uh, you know, the folks in Indianapolis that work at the NCAA office, if they really wanted a level playing field, they would revenue share. You know, that then whatever the Big Ten negotiates with their media partners and whatever they're taking in, uh, which dwarfs what the Pac-12 and the ACC and the Big 12 are taking in, uh, the SEC is on par with, uh, with the, the Big Ten, wouldn't matter. Because everybody would share it and they would all instead of instead of a Big Ten school getting 100 million and uh, the Pac-12 getting 30 million, uh, they would they would all get 65 million. Um, And obviously you would bring the other conferences into it to the extent they wanted to. And then we'd find out who makes the better decisions with their resources and and does well with it. That's what a a, a true level playing field looks like. And nobody, I haven't heard anybody in, a, in the NCAA structure go to Congress and say, hey, you know, give us a level playing field. We want revenue sharing. No, they don't. They don't want it because that's going to affect their money. They, the, the, one of the problems I see is all of these leagues and member institutions in those leagues, they think it's their money. So when the players get money, they go, wait a minute, that's our money. We need guardrails. <laughs> We need guardrails because that's our money. And any any donor from our school that gives to a collective, they would have given that to us before. And that's money we don't we don't get anymore. Like that's not fair. That's not right. 
come on, man. I mean, we know what this is. The players did not build this enterprise into a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. All of those administrators did and their predecessors. And this is the system they built and the players deserve to share in it and to, to operate uh, to their fair market value, just like every other student is allowed to do. Like if some student at Stanford writes code that Google wants, they get the money and they can, you know, they, they get all the intellectual property rights and it doesn't affect their status as a student. They don't get their scholarship taken away. They don't have to sit out a year. Um, and, and they tell us that athletes are just students to be treated like any other student. Well, treat them like any other student, give them their full economic rights. To me, it's really not that difficult. And the fact that they they have limited rights now in NIL, and every game has been played on time, every check is cleared, <laughs> everybody's still going to practice when practice starts. Nobody's left practice to do a photo shoot or anything like that. All the all the stupid things that administrators say. Well, this could happen. Oh, they'll blow their money. What I see now are players that are far more educated in economic and financial matters than they were before. So before we were, you know, they were keeping them in a bubble and calling them amateurs when they really weren't keeping them in a bubble and flying them around on private planes to play at their behest and then turning them out in the world and saying, good luck. So sign your contracts with pro teams with no experience with money whatsoever and good luck to you. Um, and now they're they're getting that experience while they're in college with access to advisors at the university and professors and business school people, law school people. I mean, it's nothing but a positive. And uh, and I, I don't see how this is you know so so difficult for administrators to understand. Like, hey, sorry, it's a little more difficult with the transfer portal, which you passed. Like, how about this one? Anytime the NCAA passes a rule that some schlep like me doesn't like, and I say that this just isn't good policy, there, there, there's a, a symphony of people that say, hey, you have to remember, the schools are the NCAA. They passed it as if they, them passing it makes it good policy. Well, why didn't it apply to the transfer portal? Remember, you know, the NCAA schools, they voted for that. They passed it. So it's good. Like, I think I the transfer portal can be fixed and it can be better. But, but it doesn't need to be fixed by restricting athlete movement. Um, uh, and and I'm, I couldn't be more sick and tired of hearing coaches say, uh, well, the players don't want to go through adversity anymore. They didn't want to go through adversity when I played. But we had to because <laughs> we couldn't move. And, and now they can. And we're seeing that from time to time they do. And the best part of it, at Reese, in my, in my view – the best part of it is all of these really good players at the mid-major level that were under-recruited out of high school or developed late, late bloomers, whatever you want. They're able to transfer, and now everybody knows who they are. Mm -hmm. they, they've played on a bigger stage, and they've proved how good they are, and they're, they're, they're now in basketball household names when they would have had to play in anonymity uh, before because, you know, they, they would have lost a year if they left and, and the transfer thing was so much more difficult. I, I think that's a positive, but reasonable minds can differ. People look at it differently. And, uh, and I certainly do for most, most of the administrators that are vocal about it. How many questions do you generally get in with a guy when you go 94 feet? Four or five. And okay. what I do, what I do is it, I don't surprise them anymore. I always ask them questions before we start. So one, I can learn a little bit more and it gives me a direction. But also, so uh, if I ask them a question, it's a little out of left field to them. And then they think about it for 30 seconds or whatever, uh, then, then they've got it. You know, like if I ask them, okay, who's the best player you've ever guarded? They'll go, God, the best player I've ever guarded. Wow. Well, yeah. I guarded this guy and I guarded that guy. Well, that wouldn't look, that wouldn't do well right. in yeah. the 94 feet yeah. thing. That was my, that was the first experience I had with it. So the 94 feet thing started, I don't know how many years ago. Jay Wright from Villanova was my first 94 feet. We did it. They played a non-conference game at Virginia and he was kind enough to do it, told them the concept. And the first question I asked him was, what was your favorite TV show as a kid? 
and and we're walking and he goes oh god that's a good question my favorite tv show as a kid man there were so many what was my favorite tv show as a kid? We, we got <laughs> we got down to the other free throw line i'm like you f the whole thing up like how could you just say gilligan's <laughs> island let's get it get it over with and and we used the outtakes from it but that was one of the only times we ever had to do it twice uh, and, and I still remind Jay of that now that he's a card carrying member of the media eating the media <laughs> meals. Like now he's eating the media meals in his fancy suit, uh, uh, since he, he became a card carrying member of the media. Thank goodness he's wearing those suits again, instead of the quarter zips, like all of these guys dressing, uh, dressing like they're, I don't know, ready to clean out their garage. He's, he's given you a run for the most Natalie attired broadcaster uh, and, and the hair. Like He's you've, you've got some real, you, you were, you had an easy ride and, and now you've transferred up. You got some competition now with, uh, with Jay Wright. Well, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt of the heads up of what the questions are. We can't really walk 94 feet on a podcast, but here's some, here's some questions in the 94 feet vein. So you can be the subject. What was your greatest acting performance? My greatest acting performance was in high school. I was uh, I played the lead in a high school production of of Lillian Hellman's Watch on the Rhine. It was a uh, World War Two uh, is from Lillian Hellman's play, and uh, and I won a an award for it. I was uh, I was selected by the Bank of America as the uh, the best actor in uh, in the South Bay area of Southern California. And so that I'm, I'm not only an actor, I'm an award-winning actor. And a member of the Screen Actors Guild, I still watch all of those Oscar movies. What's your favorite movie of all time? Probably The Godfather with, uh, um, I would say, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as second, but that's going back a ways. Those, those movies were made in the, uh, in the 70s, so that would have been 1974, 75. Nichol- Jack Nicholson starred in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and uh, and you can't even use those references anymore because the the kids are like, what, what the hell are you talking about? Like if I if I said if I said no big man has no big man has been as dominant as Zach Eady since the Chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> like people would be going, what the hell are you talking about? And all the octogenarians would be going, yeah, I told that's a good one. <laughs> Name three professional athletes who appeared in the Brady Bunch. Wes Parker, first baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, Joe Namath, and uh, Don Drysdale, also of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Last time you ate something and said, I'm never eating that again. Oh, um, I ate something with cheese in it recently that was not advertised it was some sort of uh, ravioli uh cheese ravioli which i can usually because it's melted inside i can usually stomach it but it had one of these really uh funky cheeses in it and uh and it would that was a napkin spit out for me one thing you wish you had said to coach k when you were a player that you never had the guts to say uh this actually happened um i i had um I had played. I had done a pretty good job in a game defensively against the University of Washington, where they had Detlef Schramm and Christian Velp. And if I remember right, I held Velp under ten points, and he was like one of the nation's leading scorers. And after the game, a member of the media asked Coach K about the defensive job I did, and he he gave me kind of a left-handed compliment by saying, "Well, yeah, Jay did a good job, but but our guards got really good pressure on the ball." I mean, they, they kept him from seeing in. And when I heard that, I'm like, really? You couldn't, you couldn't just say I did a good job. Would that kill you? <laughs> and uh, so not long after that, we played Oklahoma. And it was the year after Wayman Tisdale left. They were still a top 10 team, and they could really score. And this dude named David Johnson, who you know Oklahoma fans will remember, he lit me up, man. He scored like 31 turnaround jumpers. I could not deal with the guy. And Coach K lit me up afterwards in film session. And and I wanted so badly to say, hey, Coach, what about the pressure on the ball? Like, there was <laughs> where was the pressure on the ball? Uh, but I didn't say it. I was thinking it, though, in film session. Like, mm, there's pressure on the ball when I did a good job. Not so good there. No, it was, no, nobody talking about the pressure on the ball. Not talking to the guards about, hey, you got to pressure the ball. Should have said it. You You've written a book that was 
widely acclaimed on, on toughness. What would you like to write a book about next? My greatest quality, which is smugness. And that would be the title <laughs> of the book. It would be called Smugness. Um, I would actually, I, I would like to write a, if I wrote another book and I don't know that I would, would want to go through that again, I have much more respect for, for writers now than I did before, which was a healthy amount before. Uh, but I, I would probably want to write on being a teammate um, and what that means. And I, it was never defined to me uh, growing up what toughness was. And that's what fascinated me about the subject. It, it was just something you, you kind of learned along the way and and struggled with. And and I, I do think, you know, sort of the same thing about being a great teammate, you know, that um, empathy and vulnerability and all those things are, are strengths are not weaknesses. And, and, uh, and I would, you know, you'd want to talk about the qualities of the teammates you've had. And, and I feel the same thing uh, about colleagues. Like I, I think colleague, teammate, classmate, uh, coworker, all those things are interchangeable and, uh, and the same principles apply. So I think it would go beyond sports. One thing that you would like to do that has nothing to do with, with basketball, golf, or the law. What's something you would like to do? Uh, I would like to do, uh, this sounds corny, but it's true. I would like to do whatever my wife, Wendy wants to do that. Uh, you know, I, I've been able to run around doing whatever I wanted to do for a long time. And she made that possible. And, and she would say that she's always done what she's wanted to do, you know, with the family and all this other stuff. So she would deflect that. But, you know, as we're, uh, we're rapidly aging, she's not. She sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber every night and gets, <laughs> you know, oxygen treatments. And she still looks like she's 20, 25 years old. But, but I, I, want her, I want her to be able to do whatever she wants in whatever little time I have left before she moves on to her much younger second husband. I did notice when we were all at dinner the other night, the waiter asked her, and what would your father like to drink? <laughs> it's becoming more and more pronounced. <laughs> and, uh, and especially like th this one's killing me a little bit. I mean, I, I say thank you and I, I'm, I'm grateful for the compliment. But when I, I am getting a lot of college aged people coming up to me asking for an autograph or a picture and then saying, my mother loves you. <laughs> or my my grandfather thinks you're the best. And you're like, really? Really? I, you know what? The funny thing was, I used to, I mean, I didn't snap at the kids or anything like that. But up until a few years ago, we would have kids come up to us at game day. And, and they would, the guy, the kid would say, I've watched you my whole life. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, no, you, no, you haven't. I'm like, what a silly thing to say. I'm not old enough. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute. You're the age of my kids. Yeah, I guess you have. You know, I, it's a, sort of a begrudging acceptance there. I mean, I prefer the I've watched you my whole life thing to wait till I show my grandmother this picture. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I went out and did, you know this, but so I went out and did uh, LeBron James' son, Bronny, his high school game out in California. And, and I mean, it was a little bit weird that you're going, okay, I, I did uh, LeBron's high school game and now I'm doing LeBron's son's high school game. And I was going, if they sign me LeBron's grandson's game, I'm out, like <laughs> not doing it. Uh, it's just kind of a reminder that, uh, that, you know, the, the grave is being, you know, they're, they're digging it right now. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking in going, all right, pretty soon dirt nap it's coming. <laughs> Uh, you got a long way to go, my friend. Jay, thanks for taking so much time uh, doing this. Look forward to uh, College Game Day this weekend. We'll have a blast, as always. Can't wait until the ratings plummet for your podcast after this fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> Great job, man. <laughs>